Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Lenardotti, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, this week you bring dinosaur poem updates. We've had Edwin Morgan and Inez Smith, uh, and to them we now add... To them we now add another dinosaur poem, in fact. Um, and we found about this in the letters page of the TLS, which is the old-fashioned way of doing it. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um, somebody suggested... Al Purdy's love at Roblin Lake. And as he points out, the dinosaurs are, they're not actually named, they're immense reptiles. It's called Love at Roblin Lake. And it's not romantic love, should we say? It's, it's, well, it contains it's the line boing, boing, boing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's twice, um, no less. Twice, yeah, as there, as there once wasn't enough. It's someone who um, dreams about doing it like a dinosaur. Can yeah. I say that? Yeah, like a like a vulgar elephant doth, yeah. uh, or uh, and immense reptiles did in the open air openly, and then I'm going to stop reading there. Um. <laughs> so, and it, as I say, it's by Al Purdy. So, if people want to go and read about another dinosaur poem, a bit more racy than a couple of the others we've mentioned, <laughs> then uh, then go for it. They and just keep it all coming thick and fast. Yeah. <laughs> you um you may not know this about me, Lucy, but um. When I was 14, I did work experience at a veterinary clinic in Liverpool. I don't know if I've told you about this. I did not um, know that. And I, well, I wanted to be a vet at the time, at the time so there was a logic to it. Um, but I spent a lot of time pipette feeding an iguana uh, who had a, oh. a calcium deficiency. So I feel like I've, I've come pretty <laughs> close to a dinosaur. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a weirdly calming thing to do. It was, it was probably two of the strangest weeks of my life. And I, I mean, I have to admit, I always preferred the fluffy things, just, you know, particularly mm. dogs. Um, and when I was even younger, my ambition was to grow up to be a dog. So that also possibly <laughs> explains why we have two pieces on canine companions we in this do. week's issue. I was about to say, speaking of dogs, we've got we have we've got two pieces, one about Dogopolis, which sounds great. But actually, it's about a history of 
how dogs and humans have shaped cities, modern New York, London and Paris. Then it's a bit sad. I mean, basically, we treat them better now than we did, which isn't saying that much. Is no, it? We've basically we've made dogs less doggy. We've we've I think uh, our writer Enli Kong's way of putting it is we've narrowed the the horizons of, of canine possibility uh, significantly. Um, we basically because we wanted to live in clean modern cities, we've made them incredibly clean and 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 modern uh, and and quite different to how they would have been otherwise yes but we have also stopped sort of rounding them up and killing them which yes uh, there is that i mean is, some yeah is we, good. Have, we have in those three cities for sure uh, yeah. and i was interested to learn about um the origins of the the pooper scoop law that it started in new york in 1978 i think it was Oh, yeah. Um, yeah and and right. followed rather later in, in Paris, <laughs> London. We got it, it looks like, in 1996 and in Paris in 2002, which is, you know, it, it's quite late. But I know, but I feel like a few people will be nodding their heads at this and thinking, yes, <laughs> yep, that makes sense. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> but speaking of dogs hanging about in the, uh, in the wilderness and doing what they do very well, the other piece is about... Truffle hunting dogs. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. This is basically um, a book that I dreamt of writing myself many years ago. Well, it's sort of a variation on it because I, I once had a dream of becoming a trufalera, which is a the, the female equivalent of, of a trufalero is the Italian well, word, truffle can. hunter. Well, I you can't because can. I actually have responsibilities now, so I can't just um, disappear to Piemonte. I don't mean and... <laughs> right now, but you could do it in about 30, 40 years, I reckon. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll keep it on my list. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, they're just they're incredible, these dogs. They have love... um, they have a truffle hunting university in Piemonte. Um, <laughs> yeah, that they that, that is where the dogs go. And that's how they learn to do it. And the reason we're waffling on about this or I'm waffling on about this is this book by Rowan Jacobson called Truffle Hound. Um, and in it, he describes um, he says the true heroes of the truffle verse are the dogs. This isn't him. This is our reviewer, Esme O'Keefe. Um, and he he, Rowan Jacobson, the author, describes sensors being composed of molecules. And this is what leads the dog to the truffle. Uh, and these, these smells stretch like taffy thin ribbons folding on themselves, meandering on the breeze, curling around tree trunks, pooling in low spots. And a dog's nose is designed to lock onto any one of these threads and just reel it in. And there's a lovely thing, a quote also from the book about how the, what the dogs are sort of smelling the past and the future. The, yeah. It's a brilliant... Um, it's a brilliant sort of evocation of the way they smell. The only other evocation I've read that's been anywhere near as good as that has been from Terry Pratchett. Here we go. The whole, the <laughs> whole, you, all of life, human and canine and other life is found in Terry Pratchett. Because one of the people, I don't want to spoil this for anyone, but I'm going to tell it anyway. One of the people on the police force is a werewolf. And when she turns into a wolf, it's actually terribly useful to be have a werewolf on the police force because sure. she can smell things out. And she, she, that's how he described it. He describes it very visually and also in terms of time. And also he says the thing about the threads, you know, the threads of smell and just to distinguish between them. Ah. So you could read about it there as well. Yeah. Rowan Jacobson describes it as a cubist way of seeing the world, which sounds quite right. Um, yeah. So I suppose if if that doesn't make... Uh, you listeners want to subscribe to the TLS I, I don't I don't know what to say if you don't if you don't want to subscribe perhaps your dog uh, your dog would uh, go to the hyphen tls.co.uk forward slash pod to find out about an offer exclusive to podcast listeners uh, now coming up on this week's show 
Andrea Arnold's new film, Cow, attempts to show life from an animal's perspective. The anthropologist and science writer Barbara J. King will tell us more. And our classicist Mary Beard has been thinking about Romans kissing and has some thoughts to share. But first, this week, we're celebrating 100 years since the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. And to mark the occasion, we're returning to Joyce's work with a specific brief to explore how Joyce saw it as an opportunity to tackle, as he had before, but now with especially great force, the Irish relationship with language and nationalism, a relationship which has not exactly cooled, though it has changed over the past century. Audrey McGee, whose own novel, The Colony, concerned with Irish language and place and belonging and many other themes Joyce grappled with too, is published this same historic week. So no pressure at all there. Uh, And she has written on the topic for us and joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Audrey. Hello. Hi, a pleasure to be with you. Lovely to have you on. In your essay, we first meet Joyce in a strictly uh, bureaucratic capacity. He's recorded by his father uh, in the census of March 31. First, 1901, and he's noted as James, 19 years old, male, Roman Catholic, unmarried, a student, and a speaker of Irish and English. And it's that last bit that we're going to dig into now. Uh, it's a flat and simple line to summarise and apparently settle an incredibly tricky matter, isn't it? And one that remains a tricky matter, you know, and it, and it was a tricky matter for Joyce throughout his life. Um, and you can trace that through his writing. You know, it's a difficult question. It's a very difficult question. And it was one he, at the time when he, when he was cited in the census as being a speaker of English and Irish, he was actually learning Irish, but he wasn't an Irish speaker. And his house was not a bilingual house. He was, his house was fully English speaking. Um, his education, firstly with the Jesuits and then later with, at university level with um, University College in Dublin, was all done through English. But there was a revival movement going on, headed, as you know, by um, Yeats and Singh and Lady Gregory. Um, And, you know, it it was such a strong movement because it was the big artistic movement of the time. But it was all based around language and Irishness and the expression of Irishness through the Irish language. And Joyce did not have the Irish language. So as a student, he took Irish lessons and he joined Conrina Gaelga, which was the Gaelic League. And they were organising lessons um, for English speakers around the country, but was particularly strong in Dublin. And, and Joyce struggled with this because he was obviously hugely fascinated by language. Language was his, his medium, his passion. But language in Ireland... W- was is is such a political issue you know it's very hard to separate Irish from politics and it was particularly hard back then because it was such a, a a marker of your relationship with the national movement and the revivalist movement and the literary revival so he found himself between a rock and a hard place because he had no interest in this nationalist fervor it was not him it was not what he wanted to be, but yet the great writer of Yeats and Singh, they were all part of this. So, so you know, he was, he was in quite a, quite a tricky position. It's interesting that his dad, who, who was in charge of filling in the details on the census, sort of made the decision to, to record him in that way. It's almost like he was choosing to make a statement on his behalf about, about where they sat in, 
in, in the politics of, of the things. And it's kind of interesting to, to think about the language by this point had sort of been co-opted twice. I mean, first by the British colonisers who disparaged it, um, you know, calling it, I think you say, the useless tongue of illiterate peasants. Uh, and then it was co-opted again to fight on the other side, as you say, by uh, the Irish revivalists. So he couldn't, I mean, Joyce had no, it was it was obviously going to be very difficult for him to see it apart from apart from all of that. But both of those instances are about a kind of a moving backwards, aren't they? It's a sort of a return to a previous time for better or for worse. Is that what Joyce's main objection to learning it was, do you think? Well, I, I wouldn't say Joyce's father wrote that without Joyce's input. You know, right. so I, I would say Joyce was involved in that um, decision to write himself as bilingual because John Joyce wrote himself as wrote down himself as an English speaker. So I wouldn't say that it was foisted upon him. I, my impression of it all or understanding of it all or reading of it all would be that this was, you know, Joyce himself. Mm. Um, positioning know, himself. Of, yeah, positioning himself and then then finding that he didn't enjoy this position that he had that he had found himself in mm. um, and then just really abandoned the whole thing and declared in, in Stephen Hero that English is the language for the continent. And he was off. He was gone. You know, and so how, how did his how did he how did his heading off how did his 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 move abroad shift things for him? Do you think? Well, he he, you know, the wonderful thing for Joyce when he left was that he became immersed in so many different languages. You know that it wasn't just a binary choice of Irish or English or you know is it one or the other. There were so many. You know, so he could when he was in Trieste he could learn formal Italian while speaking the Triestine um, dialect at home. And, and then he also learned German and he had French, um, but he was able to completely immerse himself to the point of learning Norwegian so that he could read Ibsen in its original, in its original, read Ibsen in his original language. So he just had a, he feasted on these languages on the continent and flitted from one to the other, then you know, and that and that fed so totally into his writing because it was this melange of all these words, of all these origins and nuances and meaning and interpretation. So it was he had a field day with it all. Um, but at the back of it all was this relationship with the the mother tongue of any Irish person, even if you're not an Irish speaker. It was it was the mother tongue of your country. Um, and so, I mean, so he, he was sort of trying to run away from having to tackle that that dilemma, wasn't he? You say of, of keeping well, by, or shedding by, that language. Yeah, completely. Because by being on the continent, he didn't have to engage with it. It wasn't mm. there in front of him. He could he could flee the Irish speakers or the people who thought that the future of Ireland was through the Irish language. Um, being on the continent allowed him a completely separate identity that was free of that. And he saw himself as a Parnellite and a European, not as a kind of backward looking, romantic Irish speaking Islander. You know, he saw himself much, very, sorry, he saw himself very much as a European, as a forward thinking modernist um, and didn't want to look backwards, but it's not always that simple and language is not a simple space, especially not for somebody like Joyce. A lot of the time he mocks the language, you know, a lot of the time he he's almost mocking in his use of it. 
because he's not quite comfortable with it, but he doesn't leave it behind either. And it's interesting that when he when he fled Ireland, and I mean not directly, but partly to 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 flee this this dilemma, um, he he wound up going to Trieste, a place uh, which is a meeting point of languages and that has this 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 language of its own. And and he, you know he was in Italy, a country where this this exact uh, linguistic political tension is was then and is in, is still incredibly fraught. So it must have in a way, as well as giving him respite from the dilemma, it will have kept it ever present and probably just helped him to find new ways of, of approaching it. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can give us a taste of, of how all of this, this kind of linguistic uh, wrestling played out in, in his writing pre-Ulysses, um, perhaps, which we'll come to in a moment, because it did on and on, back and forth. And there's a scene you mentioned in particular in, in Dubliners. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a beautiful scene there, there in Eveline, um, or Eveline, um, with Dubliners from 1914, where um, the old woman is dying in the bed and she's it's she's senile. She's, you know, she's really kind of dying quite slowly, but she's muttering and she's she's saying, Deravown, Seraun, Deravown, Seraun, and this goes on and on. Um, and this chant, and it's, you know, on the surface of it, it's nonsense. You know, what is this? This is a, a dying old woman muttering. But, you know, Joyce never just wrote something down for the sake of it. Everything in Joyce has meaning. And, you know, Joyce and scholars have long debated, it, what is this meaning? Is there a meaning? Some people have said it's it's a nonsense. It just means it's the, it's the dying language. But others have, have found things like Thoravaun, Siraun, um, I have been there, you you should go there, which is kind of, par- if you like, a, the phrase crystallizing this, the story of Evelyn, who is bound to live as her mother did. You know, you you will live as I did on this small island, you will not leave. You know, there are around, see around, you know, I have been there, you should go there. You know, so it's it's, was he saying that? Or was it, as other people would say, really just gibberish, nonsense of a, of a dying woman just as the language was dying that's an interesting one but further on in the same collection of stories in the dead um there's that really really great scene between um gabriel conroy and molly ivers and molly ivers with a very protestant na- surname is an ardent supporter of the gaelic league and the irish language and um she is um challenging Gabriel Conroy because Gabriel Conroy is saying that he's going to go and travel to France and Belgium and she's saying well why, why are you going to France and Belgium you should be going to your to the Aran Islands and he's saying well no I want to go and practice my language she said well you know use you have your own language and mm. you know he then says Irish is not my language but then he goes to bed that night and he's thinking it over and over and over and by the end of it he's saying that he will travel westwards mm. that he will he will go back to the Irish language. So, you know, Joyce is already conflicted because on the one hand, he's saying, you know, um, I'm going, I'm leaving, I'm getting out of here. But then when he's gone, he starts to debate within through his characters as to whether or not he should be back there learning the language. Should I be back in the West learning the learning Irish and keeping Irish alive? Mm. Um, so it's a complicated difficult space that he's inhabiting and he's inhabiting it because of his love of language but the politics around the language in Ireland as exactly as you say 
he saw echoed then in in Italy and Trieste and in parts of France too. You would see all this politics around around small languages struggling to survive against these bigger, more formalized, structured languages. And and this this uh, linguistic space that he set himself in, and you know, he started to inhabit in in Dubliners. Um, he he extends that. He, he enriches it. He goes deeper and deeper in in Ulysses, which itself started as, didn't it start as a, a discarded chapter of, of, of Dubliners? But tell us, tell us about how the dilemma sort of bubbles up again and again in Ulysses itself. So in, in Ulysses, quite, in, you know, in the first, um, in the first part of Ulysses, we have um, that wonderful, wonderful scene in Telemachus, where Haynes, um, the Englishman who speaks Irish, um, and he's, he's in the tower with um and he's in the tower and he's speaking he's speaking irish to the to the woman who delivers the milk i don't know if you remember this scene but it's the most glorious scene because she comes in with the milk she's 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 carrying the, these this big jug of milk from which she pours and he starts to speak to her in irish and she's totally bewildered she's like what is this man saying is he speaking french who is he you know <laughs> and it's just this kind of you know he he just creates this incredible dilemma where this Englishman comes to Ireland to save Irish, but really finds himself in this country where they're looking at him bewildered because it's like, what in God's name is he saying? You know, what language is he speaking? And she's doing her best. And she says, oh, you know, yeah, it's a lovely language for those who speak it. I, I gather it's, it's, it's wonderful, you know, but, but he creates this bewilderment among the the speakers in Dublin, like, what is this earnest Englishman talking about? You know, and it's just, it's so beautifully done and beautifully rendered. And then in the Cyclops episode, it's, he takes it further where he satirizes Michael Cusack, who's the um, founder of the Gaelic Athletic Association, who's sitting in, in the pub and he's downing pints and he's spouting on and on about the marvels of Ireland and everything else. And you know, Joyce just parodies this whole thing, this exclusive, bigoted interpretation of Ireland that he just can't abide. It's the one thing about Ireland that he can't, he just can't take it. And that episode, that's not only is 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 he proud of Ireland, that turns into sort of xenophobia, doesn't it? And hatred of everybody else. Yes, completely. It's, it's bigoted, it's xenophobic. It's just, it's isolated and it's isolationism. And that was not Joyce. And that's what he really wanted principal reasons why he fled um but they kept coming back to you know this this interpretation of irishness and the language that is embedded in that interpretation of irishness um so you know he did struggle all the time to unpick those two but 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 he still saw merit in the language and he still saw merit in what had happened to the language because of colonialism, because of the British presence. There's a really interesting part in Aeolus where he recreates the speech given in Dublin by John Francis Taylor in 1901 on the revival of the Irish language. And this was a really famous speech. And Taylor was a a barrister, but really a kind of a very difficult character. And he would wander around the city giving speeches in all these different places, but had a huge following. For those who liked him, and then, but then was also equally despised, you know. So, but Joyce had a huge amount of time for this particular speech that he gave because he likened 
the British to the Egyptian high priests who wanted the enslaved Hebrews to abandon the language and the culture. And then Moses came down in this speech that Taylor gave and brought them to the, to the promised land. And, you know, this is this kind of evocation of, well, why, why don't we have our promised land? Or where is our promised land? What is this promised land? But in, in Ulysses, Joyce recreates this speech to, through Professor McHugh, and it's Professor, we must note, with a small p, which is very important. Um, and it's in the newsroom of the Telegraph. And it's actually the only section of Ulysses that Joyce recorded. And he did so at really at the kind of, at the behest of, of Sylvia Beach, who took him to a recording studio in the outskirts of Paris in 1924, and Sylvie Beach, as you know, was his publisher and the owner of Shakespeare and Co. And she realized that, you know, it was a really precious thing to get him, to get his voice reading. And, and she said, look, let's go. Um, and she organized everything. And this was the piece he chose. And he said he chose it because it was declaratory. He also recorded from Finnegan's Wake on the same day. And it's, they're beautiful recordings. I, have you heard them? If, I've heard, I've heard, yeah, I've heard, and I have heard a bit of the Ulysses one. And the thing I have to say that I find surprising across time is his accent. In in that he sounds quite English. Yeah, he doesn't he sounds quite almost upper class English? But I think that's, that's a thing to do with yeah. with yeah. with time as, as well. In a way, and and he was a showman too. You know, I mean, he did all his mm. acting down in, down in, you know, he used to perform down in, in Zurich. He had little theater mm. things. So I suppose at the time, if you went on stage and you performed, it was quite normal to adopt a kind of version of Englishness. It's, it's really worth listening to. It's, it's so evocative because he chose that. I mean, Beach would argue that um, it was his crystallization of what Ulysses was about, which was this kind of still the Parnellite kind of view of an independent Ireland free that free of not only Britain but also of, of Rome. How are things on this point now in Ireland? I mean I know that uh, like again like in Italy regional and original if you like languages have been hugely supported by uh, the European Union and so we're still very much caught up in, in the politics of identity and perhaps for that reason things seem to have developed in almost the opposite direction to what one might have predicted in the days when the British were mocking Irish speakers for being uh, peasants. Can you tell us how, how things sit now? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because um, at the beginning of this year, Irish became an official language of the European Union, which is, which is really a, a very interesting milestone. Um, but there, we're kind of on an island now where there are two, two versions of Irish. There's the East Coast Irish, and this is, they're actually numerically more people speaking Irish now on the East Coast than there are on the West Coast. Um, mm. So basically on the East Coast now, we, we've, we've had this growth and growth and growth of the Gale School, which are the Irish schools for, um, for primary and secondary school students. So they've been a huge success. Um, but there, the children are learning Irish as a second language. Um, it's not, it's not in most cases, obviously there are some cases where it's, it's, a, it's a mother tongue, but in, in most cases, in a lot of cases, in the vast majority, people are speaking English at home, but Irish in school. And that's got a huge amount of support from government and those schools are a huge, huge, um, huge success story. 
Um, and that is that is generating a, a new interest in the language, but it's a it's Irish as a second language. Now it's going to do it's because it's now an official language of the European Union. These young people who are learning this language have a great future, you know, within Europe as you know working with an Irish. But what's really interesting is on the west coast, um, it's still really a dwindling language. It's still struggling with survival, and this is where the narrative of language of place you know this is the heartbeat of the original language is still there and it's I use a I use a, a Gaeltacht talk language in the book in the colony um and it's it's a part of it's a language spoken now by only 160 people in the northwest coast of Mayo it's a coastal area really really rural tiny area um but only 160 people are speaking that language how did you get to know it? Did you grow up with Irish speakers around you and your family? No, not at all. No, actually, well, interesting. My mother um, went to school through Irish, but then went to, had to really basically abandon it all when she went to college because then everything was in English. Mm. So she then lost all her Irish. Um, so, no, I didn't grow up with Irish at all. Um, but I was <laughs> what I call myself a closet peg reader. So Peg was this this um, this book we did at school, which was the story of an island woman, an old island woman. And it was, oh, you know, it was just, oh, terror, the harshness of life in the island and how terrible life is. And, you know, and her children were always falling off the cliff and oh, this terrible thing happened. And, that, and I loved this book. And I mean, I just loved this book. But the last thing you could admit to Loving was this book. You were dead meat if you if you said you liked this book. As a secondary school student, you were finished, you know. But I just had a really strong bond with this book, even though I wasn't an Irish speaker. I just 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 evoked so much for me. Um, well, that was where it started for you, then. That's where it started for me, I think. But you know, not unlike Joyce, I I had a really conflicting relationship with it, and I took on European languages. I was a a German and French speaker. I too fled to the continent and mm. um, studied, immersed myself in French and Europe, French and German literature and European, in the whole European way and loved it, absolutely loved it. But I just find myself coming back full circle to this mother tongue, you know, and mm. it's really interesting to, to see. And, and I obviously was working in isolation, but as I come out, of my little bubble, it's it's really fascinating to see that there is definitely a shift among writers now, and particularly among younger writers like Dirini Griefa and um, Malcolm Mangan, who are just be, who are writing in bilingual texts, you know. And, and mm. Dirini Griefa has done a really interesting thing where she has written, she's she literally has one page of Irish and one page of English, um, so. And, and then there are films now being produced in Irish. But what's interesting is that, you know, I suppose we've had 20 years of, of non-conflict in the North since 1998, the Good Friday Agreement. Um, so there's been a space for the language, actually, to be removed from politics. And I think it's really interesting to see the younger generations who have, who those who decide to engage with Irish have a much more positive relationship with it. So I'm really interested to watch that. Um, now, it's obviously different in the North, where we still have conflict over language. We still have rows between um, unionism and nationalism over 
the Irish Language Act. And I think it's very interesting because it's what uh, there's a, a wonderful book on Algerian um, language conflict in Algeria by Mohammed Benrabab. And he calls um, he calls the use of languages as a proxy for conflict. Mm -hmm. And I, I just that phrase, for obvious reasons, really struck with me, really stuck with me. Sorry. Um, but really, you know, that's where we're, we're kind of still in that in the north. But yeah, down south, there's something else going on. Now, whether mm. it's lasting and whether it's enduring and whether we can, whether we reach a point where we blend what's happening on the East Coast with what's happening on the West, I don't know, time will tell, but I, I find it a very interesting space, you know, mm. so, um, because I think it has been stripped back and stripped away from politics to be just about the language, which is you know, as a linguist, is a thrilling place for any language. You know? And it's, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a linguistic detail, which probably is quite fitting given everything we've been talking about, but whether we, whether we think of it, whether we call it a revival or, or a new chapter um, entirely, it seems you're leaning more towards the latter, I think. Yeah, I think so, because I, I think what, what's really interesting is when you look at the loss of language in Ireland, we went from being monolingual Irish to bilingual, to almost monolingual English. And now are we pushing back towards a state of bilingualism? We'll never obviously be monolingual again. That, that's, you know, that's, that's not. But, but is, are, is there a possibility of a point of bilingualism for some people? It's, it's just an interesting concept. Mm. Um, are, we, are we kind of pushing back the tide or not? Time will tell. Well, we'll have to keep watching uh, and, and listening. Audrey McGee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Still to come on the show, the life of a cow called Luma and Roman kissing and some unfortunate downsides. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. to the TLS podcast. Before we try and see the world from an animal's point of view, let's talk about Romans. And who better to talk to about Romans, I hear you cry, than our own Mary Beard? Well, there is no one better, and so we're delighted that she's here. Mary, hello. Thanks for joining us in the middle of your busy day. Hello. Um, (laughs) Very busy day. As you both know, I am on emergency (laughs) childcare duties, as well as my job. (laughs) Yes, as well as. So you've got two full-time jobs. So thank you. Thank you doubly for joining us. Um, So you say in in your blog, in the TLS, Romans were actually more kissers than conquerors. So what, what, what do you, what does that mean? How come? Yeah, well, it was a bit of a naughty thing to say, really. But, um, but I think, we, we have a terribly um, hangover from the 19th century view of the Romans um, as stuffed shirts or stuffed togas, you know, um, very undemonstrative. Um, you know, what do we know them for? Well, you know, getting up and, you know, massacring the Gauls, genocidal maniacs, you know, or if you like, bringers of civilization, depending on your political point of view. Um, but it still amounts to much the same thing as a kind of image of these guys. Well, actually, what we've never really foregrounded when we look at Rome is you know, what Roman daily life was like, you know, life in the street, you know, life in the, let's say, you know, elite dinner party. How did they behave? Well, they actually behaved in ways that are surprising, I think, to most people. They do not, for example, shake hands. I don't know exactly when the handshake emerges in the history of Western culture, but if two elite Romans met each other in the street, um, what they would expect to do if they were mates is kiss each other, certainly on the face, possibly on the lips. What sort of kisses are we talking about? It's not one on each cheek, the kind of the modern thing, and (laughs) it might be a peck on the lips, or is it something more like the, you know, the socialist fraternal kiss? Sources who tell us about this um, are a little vague about exactly what an osculum, which is what it was, uh, really counted as, um, or at least the distinctions that they draw are not between, um, as we might do, kiss on the cheek or kiss on the lips or whatever. Um, 
they they think the place that you kiss an equal is somewhere on the face. And then they kind of, the further you go down the body, the more it is a kind of demeaning, tyrannical thing to do. So Because you have to bend your head, I suppose, don't you? And it's a, it's you know, a position uh, of deference. People get hugely angry when the emperor, instead of kissing them on some facial bit, holds out his hand to be kissed. You know, and so the one of the assassins of Caligula in the 40s CE, um, it, it said that one of the things that drove him to, um, to plot against Caligula was that Caligula had held his hand out to be kissed. And, um, you know, Caligula also made some rude gestures with it, which I think probably um, was also pretty insulting. But you can start to see a kind of calibration. So you go, kiss on the face, that is what we mates do with each other. So often, actually, that in the reign of the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, there was a very nasty outbreak of infectious herpes, and he had to stop the uh, Roman elite who came to his morning um, leve, his salutatio, first thing in the morning. He had to stop them kissing each other because um, there was um, an awful lot of this herpes being passed around from one to the other. Presumably that was then a sign of, hey, I'm in with the in crowd because I've <laughs> yeah, got the right herpes that everyone else has got. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you point to an epigram by Marshall, which I dredged up my 100-year-old Latin. I mean, I mean, it's as though I haven't done it for 100 years. Obviously, Latin's <laughs> older than that. I do remember that. Um, but he complains about people kissing you the whole time. Yes. You know, I mean, and it's just like, oh, you're just, you know, you're going for a walk and someone gives you a kiss and you go swimming and someone gives you a kiss and you're on the loo and someone gives you a kiss. That's it. And it's kind of it is like it is a bit like complaints that you might now hear of inveterate handshakers, you know, with all mm. the kind of nuanced differences, you know, the sweaty handshaker or the limp handshaker or the particularly aggressive handshaker. But Marshall, you know, writing end of the first beginning of the second century CE you know he he knows all the nasty um uh, ways you can kiss and and he says that nothing will put them off you know so a bit <laughs> like Tiberius and the herpes but it didn't work he said you know you might have a kind of oozing sore and they'll still kiss you <laughs> it sounds like they were really going for it you know, for me I think it's funny and it kind of would help you rewrite and um, re-choreograph in a way quite a lot of Roman movies where people don't tend to kiss each other very much but it's one of those things that suddenly makes you see how kind of stereotypical our version of Rome and Roman habits are how it is and you know you you, you can just puncture that that image just by picking out a few things that the Romans did and you suddenly see this you know this was a different world you know this wasn't the world of you know a Victorian in a toga you know probably Victorians are also big kisses I don't know but um uh, it's it, it's kind of defamiliarizing the Romans a bit it's interesting to look at who the emperor kissed and, and presumably <laughs> as you say which where where he, presumably if he kisses you on the forehead that's just absolutely brilliant anything yeah. less than that and, you're in trouble uh, no, that's right. I mean, people like Pliny will get beginning of the second century uh, uh, CE. You know, they're making speech in the in the Senate, and um, when we have that survives, and you know, it says, of course, you know, we are on kissing terms. You know, kind of, 
um, very, very clear that he wants people to know that he's one of the kind of guys who kisses the emperor. Mm. And, you know, you then go down and either to people who are not kissed at all or, you know, there's, there's the, the demeaning, you will kiss my hand, please. It gets worse if you go lower down. Kissing knees, that is, you know, that is the beginning of a sign of a tyrant. And, of course, we all guess it. Um, if, if the emperor makes you kiss his feet, that is showing that he's become a kind of, you know, in Orientalist terms, an Eastern potentate. And there's a, a, a lovely anecdote of um, Caligula holding out his beautiful jeweled slipper for someone he's just pardoned to kiss. Uh, shock, horror, terrible um, uh, um, you know, example of Caligula's um, um, monomaniacal tendencies. Um, some of Caligula's mates clearly said, no, no, it wasn't that. He just wanted people to admire his lovely slippers. <laughs> <laughs> so it was absolutely fine behaviour from Caligula. <laughs> lovely gold-encrusted slippers, and he wanted people to look at them. It wasn't that he was asking for them to be kissed. <laughs> And you also said that when you, you're working out who the emperor kissed and how that hierarchy operated, you were also looking at some of the, the everyday cases that he got to adjudicate. You know, you think if you were, as I do, on Roman emperors, all you'll discover is, is what the posh did. Well, actually, Roman emperors, um, whether they're kissing or not, uh, come into contact with the problems and issues of quite ordinary people. And there are amazing tranches of documents, both on papyrus and inscribed in stone, where emperors um, uh, tell us what their verdict is for, um, uh, for these particularly tricky cases. And I think my, my absolute favourite of all, I mean, no, I suppose I've got two. One is the Emperor Augustus having to um, judge a case of a man who was killed because a chamber pot fell on his head from an upper floor of a house in the street. And the question was, was this kind of, was this murder? Or was it a nasty accident? What a way to go. There was a backstory, I think. There was a bit of kind of hooliganism going on. So there was suspicious circumstances. But in the end, the guy gets done in with a chamber pot. But the other one is much later, where a man is bringing a case to the emperor because he had been prostituting his wife for money. And uh, one of the people to whom he had prostituted her failed to pay up and he wanted a judgment in uh, his favour. Um, and actually, it's where you see that some emperors had... Um, uh, you know, had good sense. And I'm afraid the man who wanted to raise the money by prostituting his wife, you know, was sent packing with a flea in his ear. Good, so, good, good sense. <laughs> yes. Well, there we go. Mary, thank you very much for enlightening us. Since we're all virtual, we'll let you get back to your, your very busy day and we will blow you a kiss. How about that? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm <laughs> blowing one back to you. And, you know, we'll have another instalment one day of Peculiar Habits of the Romans. Yes, please. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now, we all know, or we think we do, how farming works and what happens to farm animals, their welfare, how they're treated, that sort of thing. We might not think about it very much if we have no particular connection to it. 
But there's a new sort of film emerging that aims to look at life from the animal's point of view. The most recent is Cow by Andrea Arnold, and we're delighted to have Barbara J. King, whose most recent book is Animals' Best Friends, Putting Compassion to Work for Animals in Captivity and in the Wild, to talk to us about it. Barbara, thanks very much for coming on. I'm glad to be here. So you reviewed um, this film for us, Cow, in this week's TLS. Can you give us an idea of the film? What what happens and who who is in it? The star of the film is a dairy cow called Luma. That is the brilliance of what Arnold has done with this film, because humans are present, but only very much in the background. Their conversations are recorded and their persons are visible, but there's no narrator. And the cow, Luma, and other cows as well, are the absolute center of attention, so that one really tumbles into Luma's lived experience by watching what happens to her day by day on this farm. This is not a factory farm. It's a moderate sized dairy farm and we don't know the location. It's a universal farm. It could be anywhere. And it's just a wonderful and also heart-rending look at the complete loss of autonomy that Luma suffers on a dairy farm. Mm-hmm. I was about to say what the what what was the main thing that removing the human focus shows you? It, it, would it be that? Would it be that lack of agency for for Luma? So this type of film is attempting to say that there's more than a human world here, that animals think and feel that their days matter to them, what happens matters to them. And in the case of Luma, she is moved by humans. She's um, very much controlled to the degree that, of course, her mating with a bull is controlled. But even more than this, her life with her calves uh, is completely shattered because the calves are taken away. The entire purpose of the farm is to cause Luma and other dairy cows to be continuously pregnant so their milk can be taken for humans. This means that mother's milk is not given to the calves. So we see the lack of consent and we see the lack of agency. But where the film Cow really shines is also showing that Luma resists, that she attempts to control things herself. She can't really do this, but she's making an attempt. We see in her face, in her body movements, how she holds her body in her vocalizations, that she has feelings and opinions. She wants things to be different. And so we see more than an animal who has lost autonomy. We see an animal who is profoundly affected and has her own desires to live differently. Critics will be quick, I imagine, to wag a finger at anthropomorphism. Uh, But that's surely a synonym for empathy. Well, anthropomorphism is often wielded as a weapon against accounts of animal thinking and feeling. But in my work as an anthropologist, I have shown very clearly, as have others, that animal love and animal grief is real. It is not something that we're projecting onto other animals as the term anthropomorphism would have it. Rather, it's the animal's own behavior that shows us 
that they do mourn. And often we're talking about mourning an outright death of some animal's family member or friend. But in the case of cow, we're talking about Luma mourning separation because almost as soon as the calves are born, very, very quickly, the cows are, Luma has her offspring separated from her. The daughters are taken away. She doesn't see them again. She is agitated. She bellows. She paces. At what point she tries to protect her young calf from the humans who emerge. And this is very clearly Luma telling us with her body and her voice that this is not anthropomorphism. What's it like cinematically? Is it is it beautiful to look at? Is it kind of directional? Does, is it is it pointing you towards what to think or feel? Did you have that impression or not really? It's beautiful in some ways in the fact that Luma is turned out into a field with other cows and we see these moments of freedom under a large starry sky and you just breathe a sigh of relief as you're no longer with Luma inside a muddy barn with milking machines and loud music. Much of it is beautiful in the sense that it is compelling us to see Luma. So it is not that the scenes are one of nature. They're not natural. They're Mm. very much human controlled. As for the question of whether we are directed I think not. I think Arnold asks us to see what we can see of Luma's life. But the film very um, gorgeously, really, invites questions. Could we imagine a different world in which it is not considered typical, normal, everyday life to control another sentient being's every move? How could we bring such a world about What do we do when we scale up and we think not only of Luma as a mother, but of thousands and millions of other farmed animals who have their autonomy and their consent taken from them? I think these questions are very close to the surface, but Arnold very smartly allows us to take them on in our own way. You've thought about this. This is your working life and you've, you've talked about it and got a very big audience for this. But did it give you a new perspective on the life of a farm animal or show you anything that you, you didn't know before? I don't want to reveal the ending of the film. I haven't done so in my review and I won't mm. do so here. But I thought I knew what was coming at the end. And in fact, I didn't. It was colder and starker than I had imagined. I did cry during this movie. I was moved. So the idea that I knew things about farmed animals didn't mean that I could just watch dispassionately. I couldn't. And what I hope more than anything is that people who come to this movie will delve into those questions and not turn away from them, not turn away from the terrible cruelties that we're witnessing and not on a factory farm. I want people to really open their hearts to that. How about the other film? You mentioned another film as well, Gunda. Is that, is that a similar kind of approach? Yes, this film, which came out in 2021, directed by Viktor Kosakowski, follows the life of a pig, a sow called Gunda, 
also on a smaller farm, not a factory farm. Gunda is also a mother who has all the offspring born to her, around her. Unlike a cow, of course, a pig gives birth to multiple offspring at once. Similarly, we see her day-to-day experience. Similarly, there are no humans uh, featured. And in this case, it's even more exacerbated that absence of humans because we don't see any humans on the screen, which is a contrast with cow. But very um, much of a piece asking us to see these mammalian mothers and what they go through. Because although we do not see humans in Gunda near the end, we do hear and see a truck approach her and her piglets. And we hear the piglets being herded onto the truck. We hear their squealing. We hear their distress. The truck departs. And it's the most heartbreaking thing to stay with Gunda. By that, I mean to not let our gaze turn away from her as she trots back and forth. She's looking after the truck. She's looking in the barn. She's alone. Her piglets are gone. She will never see them again. She vocalizes like Luma does, the cow does. She's agitated like Luma is. Uh, very moving and again tells us that what is accepted in farming is actually really cruel to the farm animals who undergo these procedures and these practices. One of the things that sounds um, particularly interesting in in cow um, is that you do get glimpses of of another another way another another life for cows elsewhere. Um, you mentioned you mentioned a project called Vine Sanctuary, uh, and it just it just seems like the perfect antidote to, to maybe a, a society that has got used to to seeing these animals, these cows as as machines, objects, property, um, to then see them in an almost wild kind of capacity. Yes, to be clear, this is material that I brought to the review that is not in any way in the film. So I have been very interested in the farm sanctuary movement here in the U.S. and also, of course, in the U.K. And the particular sanctuary that I've highlighted in the review is called Vine, V-I-N-E, and it is located in the state of Vermont. And I quoted uh, co-founder Patrice Jones writing about a herd of cows on that sanctuary property who pretty much live autonomously. Now they are within the boundaries of a sanctuary, but people who work at the sanctuary, check them out twice a day, make sure everyone's fed and healthy, but otherwise let the cows determine where they want to move, with whom they want to associate and so forth. And they spend time in a forest on the sanctuary property and they have their own affairs, their friends, their allies, their their doings in the day. And it shows, yes, a different way of being, a way of honoring the fact that these cows have their own thoughts and feelings. And also that's the the perfect example of agency or as much agency as as they can safely be given because you ask in your piece what what might life be like if they did have their own agency what would it uh, what would a natural experience be for them and do you think vine is is an example of that i do vine is a good sanctuary 
also in upstate New York, Farm Sanctuary, which is the really the founder uh, establishment in the farm sanctuary movement here in the United States, is another wonderful example. I have been to Farm Sanctuary and standing in the yard outside the goat and the sheep barn and just watching friends, you know, two goats, three sheep, four goats here, five sheep there, run by, form their groups of who they want to be with and get out into the sun and and live as best they can. It's a very transforming experience and it is quite an emotional contrast with the scenes that we are shown in Cow and also in Gunda. Mm -hmm. And do you think that this kind of work, this, this, um, this new kind of approach, do you think it might change the way people think about animals, especially animals which, which may have felt very familiar to them? I absolutely do think it has the potential to change people. This is visual ethnography and it's important. And it is a compliment to books that many of us are writing about the cognition and emotion of farmed animals and other animals. And I think at the end of the day, the take home message is that any of us who wish to can make a stand by who we do not eat. In other words, three times a day when we eat, we can make choices not to support this type of cruelty in farming. So it is something about which we can learn and take action on very quickly. And I think that means that the visual ethnographies that we're talking about have the power to really make a difference. So I I really want to honor Andrea Arnold for what she has done because I think it's fantastic. Thank you very much, Barbara, for talking to us so powerfully about cow today. Thank you. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to barbara j king mary beard and audrey mcgee thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.